Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. How many of you walked by faith this week? How many of you decided, I don't know, I, I, we talked about it last week. How many of you at least once this week stopped and thought, I am a slave to Jesus Christ? I did it. I think I missed one day. But I would lose my temper driving down the expressway. And I would stop and I would say, but I am a slave to Jesus Christ. And he just reminded me to take it all back. You may be seated. I am not going to, uh, oh, Keith, I was going to, your dad told me while we were singing that last song that that song we just sang was Papaw Briggs' favorite song. So that was my great-grandfather's favorite song. I, t- I told Uncle Bruce, I'd give anything to go back and be on those pews, invisible. You know, nobody see me, nobody know I was there, but just to watch one of those old services, you know, just to see what that was like back then. Uh, but, it was, but it was beautiful. But it was hot. <laughs> but I bet it was beautiful. Um, but I'm not going to re-preach the last two weeks' uh, services or messages, but I do want to draw out here at the beginning a very powerful observation about what we've done the last two weeks. Because here's the thing, if you can answer the questions, where is your treasure? That was two weeks ago, we talked about where is your treasure? And then last week, who is your master? Can you answer those two questions? Because if you can, the way Jesus is calling the righteous, that's, you know, he's calling us to answer it a certain way. And if we can answer it the way that Jesus is calling us to answer it, then you are going to find this week's message a very easy message to get and understand and incorporate into your spirit if we can answer those questions where is my treasure and who is my master then you are going to almost this week is just going to be like oh yeah that's logical that makes sense that's the next logical progression because if you know that your treasure is in heaven and you know that your master is Jesus then what will you ever have to worry about I mean I really could close right now I'm done if you know where your treasure is you've been laying it up if you know who your master is I serve you and you only Jesus Christ then what do I have to worry about because we're filled with worry aren't we anxiety fear worry stress we got all that stuff and that is our topic this morning And man, we have a lot of words in the English language to describe that feeling in the pit of your stomach or the back of your throat. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody ever feel those feelings? That I I get it in the back of my throat. It's like your throat's closing up. It's It's anxiety, it's pure and simple anxiety. But anxiety, worry, fretting, distress, agitation, tension, unease, even irritability. These are words that describe that feeling of inner turmoil that results in the feeling of outward uneasiness. We all know it better than I can ever define it. We've all felt it and we've experienced it. The words describe a common feeling among us humans as we consider what the future may bring us and the ones that we love. Everybody in this room has had trouble going to sleep at night because they've been worried. And let's face it, that emotion is used oftentimes to motivate us to do certain things. Think about it for a second. There's that commercial and the little girl is riding in the back seat and it's a rainy night and the dad's driving and the car company wants you to have the safest car so that you don't worry about your children, right? Politicians do it all the time, don't they, in their campaigns. Make you worry about something so you'll vote for them. 
They, they'll get you, they'll play on your fears, they'll play on all your concerns, and you end up voting for a candidate not so much because you like them, but because you're afraid of what the other guy's going to do. I've been there. I've done it before. Anxiety, worry, fretting, distress, agitation, tension, irritability. They're common feelings. They're so common, in fact, that Jesus decided to tackle the issue in his magnificent sermon on the mount. Most important sermon he ever preached, and, and this is one of the topics he decides to cover. And, he, and Jesus goes directly to the issue, Matthew 6, uh, 19 through 34. And by the way, we're almost through chapter 6 on the Sermon on the Mount. We'll, we're about to go into chapter 7, and that's where it ends. So we started in June in chapter 5, and we're, we're almost at the end of 6, and we're about to go into chapter 7. So we will finish this year, I promise you. Um, but Jesus does not want us to be anxious, and he does not want us to be full of worry. He wants us to live life differently. He's offering us something that's different and something that's better. And that's a key statement. If you can get this point, if you can get where I am right now, everything else is going to flow naturally. It's going to make so much sense. He does not want us making decisions based on our fear of the future. It's what he's calling us to. He doesn't want us to do that. What he wants, rather, is he wants the direction of our lives to be established on eternal truths and not on the hollow things of this world. That's what he's wanting us. That's what he's calling us to do. And in the first section of this, of this passage, verses 19 through 21, which we examined two weeks ago, that's the ones we talked about, what do you value the most? Where is your treasure? If you treasure the things of this earth, then your heart is going to be set on them. And the direction of your life is going to tend towards the gain of them. That's what's going to happen. If you treasure the things of heaven, on the other hand, then your heart's going to be set on heavenly things, and your life will be spent gaining a heavenly reward. Okay, that's your options. That's all there is to it. And then Jesus uses that truth to lead us into the discussion of the next section, that you can't serve two masters. Or more accurate, accurately, as we, we discovered at the end of last week's message, you can't be a slave to two masters. You can serve. I, I can have two jobs. I can't be a slave to two people. Their, their goals and their aims are going to be, they're, they're not going to match sometimes, and, and so I'd have to choose one over the other. I could do two jobs, make sure that, you know, this boss is okay with my hours here. This boss is okay with my hours here. I can do two jobs. I cannot be a slave to two masters. And Paul was very, very clear last week, I am a slave to Jesus Christ. You're going to be a slave to the world or to Jesus, one or the other. You can't be a slave to two. You just can't. You'll either be a slave to God and serve him, or you'll be a slave to the things of this earth and you'll serve them. Follow me closely, because this is a principle that we can build upon. If God is your master, then he is the one who is going to take care of you. God's your master, he will take care of you. If the things of earth are your master, then you must rely upon them for your future. It's that simple. It's that simple. It is precisely at this point that we find the cause of all of our anxiety and worry. That's where it is, at that exact point. Consider again what Jesus said in verse 19. In light of what we've just talked about, do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. What feelings, 
what emotions accompany the person who is trying to store up things on earth. Think about it. We all do it. We're trying to store up things on earth. We worry about what's going to get eaten by the bugs. We worry about the stuff that we've got stored up that's going to get eaten by the, the moths. We have anxiety that, it, that the, it's going to corrode, that our house is going to, the termites are going to get in our house. They're going to devalue. It's going to become worthless. And we have fear about what someone might steal from us. Those are all negative feelings that we have. They're anxiety. That's worry that we have because I've placed my treasures here on earth. That's where I've put them, and so I'm going to be worried about it. I have this cause of anxiety. It, it's a fear that all the treasures that I've, laid, I've gained, gained and laid up are going to be lost to me or stolen or destroyed. But this passage makes it clear that Jesus does not want us to be fearful. We will not be anxious if we can follow verse 20. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. The treasure that we accumulate in heaven is protected by our master and therefore it is always safe. No bank is a safer storehouse than the father's house. No bank will ever be as safe as the father's house. We can be at peace when our treasures are laid up in heaven. That is another of the principles that we can build upon this morning. If our master is the things of this world, then we serve mammon. There's no security, and worry is going to be our constant companion. It will always be present in our life. If, on the other hand, our master is God, then we can be secure and at peace because we know that he will provide and he will protect Notice how Jesus introduces where we're going to today, verses 25 through 34. That's the ones we're going to concentrate on today. He says, for this reason, in the KJV, he says, therefore. What does that therefore mean in that situation? Here's what it means, and this is, so, this is where I was talking about a second ago. If you can get this point, the rest of this is going to go easy. It means in light of what Jesus has already said, those two things about treasure and master, in light of those things, therefore, do this. So that's got to keep that in the back of your head. In light of what I've just told you, you are now to obey the following command that I'm about to give you. Therefore, in light of what I just said, do what I'm about to tell you. And the command that Jesus gives in verse 25 is completely dependent upon you knowing where your treasure is stored up and knowing who your master is. The command, do not be anxious, is built on the principle that God is our master and our treasure is in heaven. It's a promise for us, but it's kind of a conditional promise because I've got to know where my treasure is and I've got to know who my master is. And when I do know those two things, then do not be anxious, Chris. Don't worry about a thing. We are to serve him and set our hearts upon heaven rather than on the things of this earth. The promises given in this passage are predicated upon our obedience to the two things he just told us in these commands. And that command in verse 25, do not be anxious for your life as to what you'll eat, as to what you'll drink, nor for your body what you will wear. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't be anxious for those things. In the KJV, the phrase, take no thought, it's an old English phrase, which means don't worry and don't be anxious. I think somebody wanted to sing Hakuna Matata for us this morning. It means don't worry for the rest of your days. 
That's what Jesus is saying way before Disney came out with the movie. In the KJV, that phrase, take no thought, just means don't worry and don't be anxious. Be careful here that you do not get the idea that Jesus is saying you don't have to work. Because he's not saying that. He doesn't want us to think that we can just sit down and, and birds are going to bring food to us. It happened for one of the prophets, but that's not what he's telling us. He's not suggesting that we wander through life vainly. We will see as we go through each of these that we're actually supposed to think about our food and our clothing and our, our, our shelter and things like that but we're, and, and the work that we have to do to gain them. But what Jesus is adding, and this is so, this is where the fear goes. This is where the worry goes. What Jesus is adding is the idea that as we plan for the future and we work to feed our families, all good things, all important things that we must do, we don't have to have our thoughts bound up in brooding fear and concern about the future. We work, we lay up for ourselves the, the things that we have to have. I've got to go get milk. I've got to go get eggs. But I'm not worried about where it's ultimately going to come from because my Father in heaven will provide. These are not the things that he wants to occupy the minds of his children. We should not have apprehension about these things, not over the things that we're going to need. Jesus gives a clear command that we are not to have those fearful concerns over the basic needs of life, food, drink, and clothing. That's what he talks about right here. There's nothing more basic. I mean, oxygen, I guess. But we've got plenty of that. He's worried about, he's talking about the things that we will think about every single day of our lives. Jesus could have simply given the command and left it there with the full expectation that we should obey him. But Jesus is a good pastor, and he graciously explains the basis of this, this command. He gives us reasons why we should obey it. The primary argument goes from the lesser to the higher. Follow me with this. Jesus said, is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Kind of a, a, an absurd question, right? Is life not more than the body? It is. Life is more than just this. It's, it's what we think. It's what we love. It's our passions. It's the things we do for God. It's so much more than just the physical body that we inhabit. The argument is that since God is already the master over our life, don't you think he's going to take care of those little needs? He's already our master in, in, in everything. He's going to take care of the small things. And now Jesus makes it even simpler. He uses two wonderful analogies to demonstrate this. He talks about food and he talks about anxiety. Remember, they're sitting on the side of a mountain overlooking the Sea of Galilee. So just imagine you're sitting there, Sister Stella. You've been there recently. Just imagine that you're sitting there and you can, you can picture they're sitting on the side of this mountain. You're looking out over the sea. There's, um, there's maybe some wind blowing. There's birds flying around and that's what Jesus picks up on. He points this out. He's an expert at pointing out the common things around him to explain a spiritual truth. And he points out those birds and he brings home this spiritual truth. Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow, neither do they reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not worth more than the birds? Are you not worth more than the birds? And Jesus doesn't answer the question because the answer is so obvious. The obvious, yes, 
You are worth more than the birds. Of course you're worth more than the birds of the field. Jesus didn't set aside glory to come and die for birds. He set aside glory to come and die for us, his children. The argument that Jesus is making is a simple one, but it is so powerful. If God will take care of an insignificant bird, how much more is he going to take care of his children that he loves, that he died for? I can throw a word of caution in here as well. I'm always throwing in words of caution. But there are some who have taken this passage and concluded they don't have to work. Well, we've already addressed this, but let me address it again. They don't have to think about earning a living or sowing or reaping or going into the barns. The, the birds do not do those things. But they get this twisted idea that maybe God's going to miraculously bring them their food and, and their needs. And God is certainly capable of that. I mentioned the, the prophet he did it for. He did it for Elijah. But he also did it for the children of Israel when he brought manna for 40 years in the wilderness. Those were exceptional situations, however. Jesus is not removing that general curse on man that came in Genesis 3, 17 through 19. That we're going to work by the sweat of our brow. Remember that one? Man still has to sow. Man still has to reap. Man still has to store up things. The Apostle Paul had to deal, it with, deal with it with people in the church at Thessalonica who refused to work. And he made, the, in, in 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 12, he says, If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. So clearly, we're, I'm not, Jesus ain't saying you get to just sit down on the side of the road and birds are going to feed you all day long. Paul is telling us that our labor and our hardship and working day and night so that we could pay our way sets an example so that we don't have to be a burden. And Jesus is not saying that we should quit working because God will provide. He is saying that we do not have to be anxious because God will provide. I work. I do the things I'm supposed to do. I provide for my family, but don't worry. See, that's the, that's, the, that's the thing that we're trying to get a hold of this morning. The birds of the field, they don't sow, they don't reap, they don't gather into barns. We know that, right? We know birds don't do those things. But aren't they constantly out looking for food? I mean, birds are, they're looking for the, a worm or an insect or something to eat all the time. Jesus is comparing to the birds. We're to do those things too. We're constantly to do those things, but we're not anxious about what God will provide for us. That's the thing that Jesus is saying. Work, but do not be anxious about what the outcome will be. God values you much more than the birds, and he will provide your needs. You got to work. You got to plan ahead. We have to do those things. I want the best for my kids. I want to make sure college is paid for. I want to make, I got two girls. I want to make sure weddings are paid for at some point. He's, but he's going to provide. I do the work, and then I trust that he's going to make it all work out. Your father values you. He's going to take care of you. And then in verses 28 through 30, Jesus brings up the matter of clothing and anxiety. I like that he's on just these basic things. I mean, food, clothing, and water, drinking things. You know, that's, that's what's important to us, and Jesus knows that. Food is a basic need, but so is clothing. And when a person becomes preoccupied with it, they can easily center their life around it. Jesus tells us not to have a brooding, fearful concern about that thing. And when it comes to clothes, what Jesus says in verse 28, And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon, in all of his glory, no king of Israel or Judah either, was ever clothed like Solomon. 
He had more wealth than any king after him or before him. And so not Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like a single lily in the valley. Not a single one of them. But if God so arrays the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more do for you, you men of little faith? Again, Jesus is not saying that we should expect to be clothed like Solomon without working. But he is saying that if God takes such good care of such an insignificant thing, then he's also going to take care of you. God takes care of the flowers of the field. You are more valuable than the flowers. The lilies of the field, it was a common flower in that, in that, in that area. It was common. And the people who were hearing the sermon could probably even see some that were just, just growing around them. And they were also aware. I didn't know this until I started looking this up. But lilies of the field, they actually would harvest them, dry them, and then use them later in the year to, to uh, start the fire. They were kindling. They would use them as kindling. They grew, and then they were cut down and used as kindling. That was something that lasted like that. And Jesus is saying, I took care of that. How much more will I take care of you? You have an eternal soul. Your life is going to live somewhere forever. And I care for you. If God cares for beautiful kindling, then he's going to take care of all of us. These truths apply whether you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter our station. We should not be preoccupied by food or clothing. Concern over what we will eat, concern over what we will have to, to wear our, our clothes, all those things are going. If we're concerned about all that and then we don't get what we want, what happens? We become ungrateful. That's a sin too, isn't it? I want steak and lobster. I don't like lobster, actually. I want steak. But sometimes I get mac and cheese. I got to be satisfied with mac and cheese. When, when, when we fail to rejoice in the things that God gives us, then we're showing ungratefulness. And that was one of the sins, the children of Israel in the wilderness. It was expressed by, remember that Jesus, God was always talking about their murmuring and complaining. That's, we do it too sometimes. It's one of the many sins that will characterize the last days, according to 2 Timothy 3 and 2. And that's one of the areas I want to train my children. I was thinking about it this week. That's one place I think I have failed. My children are blessed, and they have a lot of things, and I see them take things for granted. I see them being ungrateful about things, and it is my fault. If I want my children to demonstrate gratitude, then it must first be in my heart, and then I can teach them about it as well. If you want your kids to be thankful when they, when they do not get the things that, you know, their favorite meal, whatever it may be, then you need to be grateful too when you don't get your favorite meal. And the same is true with clothing. My oldest one has reached that age. 15, 20, 30 pairs of Nikes would not be enough. Fashion is big business and it causes people to worry, doesn't it? Think about the ads that we see for clothes. Oh, this one's going to make you look skinny. This one's going to make you look tall. This one's going to make you look this. This one's going to make you more attractive, whatever it is. The advertising agencies, they know that. But how many of you were worried about what you were going to wear to church this morning? How many of you thought about, well, I don't know what I'm going to wear this morning. I was worried that most of it wouldn't fit. <laughs> and not because it's fallen off of me. Let me ask it another way. Did you wear what you wore today to impress people or to impress God? Just saying, just saying. If the former, then your interest was not in the worship of God. If the latter, then take notice because he's looking at your heart anyway. He's not looking at your clothes. 
how you dress should reflect your heart. 1 Peter 3 and 3 says it this way, And let not your adornment be merely external, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gently and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of the, go- of the Lord. Certainly we do dress for, for respect for the house of God, but more important is the heart attitude that we walk into this place with. Neither fancy suits nor brand name this or that impresses God. I used to wear very expensive suits. I, used to, I was single and a lawyer, and I spent a ton of money on suits, dress shirts, ties, all that kind of stuff. I walked into church with the express goal of impressing people. I was awful about you. You've, you've said something along these lines before. I wore, I, I spent more than I had just so I could impress people with what I, I would make them think that I had. Fake it till you make it was my motto. That's what I was doing. I was insecure and I needed you to think I was something special. But all the time I was impressing people whose opinions didn't matter and, and I was ignoring the God whose opinion did matter. I have purposely changed the way, I, I dress very plainly when I come to, I, I, dress, I dress plainly at court. I dress very plainly because it is a reminder to me of what I used to be like. He is impressed with the person who desires to give their best to him in all of their things, not their stuff that they wear. In our passage, Jesus also points out that worry and concern and and all that anxiety is just foolishness. In verse 27, Jesus points out that it brings no benefit. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to your lifespan? The cubit here is just a reference to a period of time. Can you add any time? You could say a year. Who, Who can add a year to their life? In other words, worry all you want, but you won't add a single day to your life by doing it. Your anxiety does nothing good for you whatsoever. It adds nothing to the, in, to the length of your life. In fact, studies have shown worry actually can shorten life. People who worry all the time, they will have a shorter life. Worry is foolish because it brings no benefit. Oh, Chris, now you've gone to meddling. Well, you're not going to like my second reason. A second reason that it is foolish to be anxious is that it demonstrates that we are, as in the very last words of that verse he just gave us, we are men of little faith. Jesus said it at the end of verse 30. I'm not calling you that, but that's what Jesus said. So now, Chris, you've really gone to meddling, right? And that leads us to verse 31 and 32, in which Jesus says, Do not be anxious then saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we clothe ourselves for all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek? For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Your heavenly Father knows. See, your, your anxiety level, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm really starting, I'm going to meddle some more. Your anxiety level is a good indicator of how much you really trust the Lord. Think about that for a second. And I am really preaching to myself right now, so I'm going to point this way. I'm really preaching to myself right now. You guys can just listen, and if you hear anything helpful, just adopt it. But it's really for me right now. But I know I need to hear this. It seems incredible, but we have an easier time often, most of the time, in fact, we have an easier time trusting that God will save our souls from hell because of what Jesus did for us on Calvary than to trust that he will take care of my daily needs. Part of that is because we deal with the daily stuff every day, right? 
We, heaven is down the road. Hopefully, it's a long ways away. I, I, my time may come tomorrow. Your time may come tomorrow. But in our minds, we all think we're going to live forever. None of us think we're dying tomorrow. So that the, the, the salvation in heaven and, 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 and standing before Jesus, that's way down the road. But I got to eat tonight. I got four kids that need to eat tonight. Okay, so I get worried about today. And so it, it's kind of it's kind of makes sense in a way that we would we would trust salvation more than we trust him to take care of our needs. But when it comes to what we eat and what we wear, those those tangible things that, that they, they affect us personally every day and we think about them all the time. But they really are real indicators of your trust in the Lord. We know, we know, guys, that God knows our needs. How many of you believe that? He knows my needs. Do we trust that much? Can we trust that he at least knows them? Let me get you there. Because, because after that, I'll say we'll trust him to provide them. So let's trust that he knows them. And then we're going to build on that to get to where we trust that he will provide our needs. We saw that some weeks ago when we were studying that section earlier in this chapter when Jesus deals with prayer. Because he told us in Matthew 6 and 8 that God knows our needs before we even ask. Before the words formed in your, before the thought formed in your brain, he knew what your need was. If you have a financial need, if you have a health need, if you have a person at work that's just bugging the mess out of you, Whatever it is, if you've got a child who's found their way into addiction, if you've got whatever you're facing, before you could even form the thought in your brain to say, Jesus, I need, he knew about it. He already knew. We can pray with confidence, church. We can pray with confidence. We should have that same confidence that then Jesus will not only just hear, but he will provide for us. We've all heard a hundred stories of how God has met this person or that person's need. We've heard wonderful testimonies in this church. Most of us have seen it. We may have given testimonies too. We have all seen answered prayer. Everyone in this room can tell of a need that God has met in their life. I certainly can. I can tell of needs that God has met over the last seven years after being unemployed for two of them. I was in a very, very precarious financial situation. I did not know how bills would be paid. Even after I started working again, we had gotten so far behind the eight ball that it was a struggle. There was always more owed than there was coming in. Electricity got turned off once or twice. It's kind of embarrassing for me to admit to you guys, but it happened. We got it back on. Thank the Lord. And God just provided I never was without anything that I needed. Sometimes I was without things that I wanted, but I was never without anything that I needed. God kept on providing. We never went hungry. We never went hungry. There were times I wanted Texas Roadhouse, and we got Burger King and split it. God clothed us. God fed us. God housed us. We don't know how things are going to come, but God knows how they're going to come, and He will provide those things. He will meet the needs that we have. There were things came out of the woodwork. I'd get a check for, I didn't even know I'd done that work. I'd get that. I'd get, a, um, I'd get uh, my dad would come in and give me something. It was the craziest thing. That sometimes I know there wasn't even money in the bank and a, and a check cleared. I don't know how that happened. God knows how that happened. Yeah. 
See, but even with all that faith, all those things we've all seen as a background, my faith can weaken and in my humanness, I start doubting if the Lord will continue to provide. It is precisely at this time that I need to remind myself of the truth that Jesus is teaching here and get my eyes focused on the right object again. The Gentiles, he he referred to the Gentiles just a second ago in that scripture. Here it is simply used as a reference to people who don't know God. He wasn't, it wasn't a, a racial type thing, Gentiles versus Jews. It was just for people who don't know God. See, the, the people who don't know God, they're anxious and they constantly seek after what they will eat and drink and what they will clothe themselves with. Jesus tells me that my heavenly Father already knows my need. I do not need to have my thoughts preoccupied with those things. God's already got them. I don't have to be preoccupied with it because God's already gotten it. The cure for anxiety is simple. It is simple and it is logically stated in the next verse, verse 33. And if you followed the Sermon on the Mount this far, most of us in this room, we've been doing this since June. If you followed the Sermon on the Mount this far, what's the theme? What's the theme? Our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees or we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. If you know nothing else by the time we finish this Sermon on the Mount, know what the theme is. The theme, our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees or we will not see the kingdom. That's, that's the theme. Then two weeks ago, and, and we talked about, we've talked about that forever and ever. Then two weeks ago, we, the question was, where is your treasure? Last week, the question was, who is your master? Today, don't be anxious. They, it, everything is flowing together. But, and so here's the answer. That's what the, the way to not be anxious is in verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. If we will seek after those things first, then Jesus says that God's going to supply all the rest. If I seek his kingdom and his righteousness, Burger King ain't going to be a problem. If God can handle everything else, then what I eat is not a problem. He will take care of it. If we seek that first, God will supply. The cure for anxiety, you've all come to hear that, right? Here's the cure for anxiety. You ready for it? Maybe I'll wait till next week. The cure for anxiety then is simply to seek after what God wants and let him take care of you. Let him drive the car. When it's time for everybody to take a bathroom stop, when everybody in the car gets hungry, Jesus is going to take, you just sit and ride in the car because Jesus is going to take care of your needs. You can rest in his loving care knowing that he will provide for you. If your mind is occupied with him, then it cannot be occupied with the worries of this world. It's that simple, folks. This, in fact, it's simple in theory, but it can be very difficult to do because of the pressure the world tries to put on us. We look around and we see the Joneses, and they're doing this, and, and they're, they just bought that, and they, they're going on that vacation. And, and we feel pressure to achieve the same. We look for all kinds of ways to make more money so that we can do the things the Joneses were doing. We want people to be impressed with what we have and how we look in our house and our cars and all those things, the clothes that we wear. Our minds are preoccupied with the things of this world and then we start to get anxious. It follows, 
it, it, it just like A, I mean, just like B follows A, this is exactly what happens. And then once you reach a standard of living, well, you got to worry about maintaining it, right? Because the last thing you want to do is be seen to do that. Nobody wants that either. So we're anxious, we're worried, and it, it starts a cycle. We'll do anything we have to do to maintain that lifestyle. We become concerned about the future, and we start to worry. What a difference if I just obey God and just rest on His promises. What a difference it makes if I'll just rest in God's hands. If I keep my focus correct, if I seek God's kingdom and God's righteousness first, then God's promise to me, a promise He has made to me, is that He will take care of my needs. Not my wants. He will take care of my needs. Therefore, I have no fear of the future. I have no anxiety because my treasure is in heaven and God is my security for my present and my future. And that's what verse 34 is speaking about here, the future. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Worry is the preoccupation in the present with the fear of what may take place in the future. There's nothing wrong with having contingency plans. Have some money in the bank in case an emergency comes up. There's nothing wrong with that. We need to plan ahead. Plan for your retirement. Those things are good things. We need to do those things. We need to plan ahead. But we do not need to become preoccupied and fearful of the future. That's the distinction. The future is in the hands of God. And you know what? We may not make it there anyway. I could plan all day for my retirement and all it would take is a truck running a red light and I'm not there for my retirement. What I lay up in heaven, though, will be forever. What I lay up for heaven will be forever. We, we need to live for God in the present and not live for ourselves fearing into the future. But let me emphasize that God's promise to take care of us is actually conditional. I, I, I'd love to say, yeah, it's unconditional. He's going to take care of us. But that would be lying to you. We must seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. If you are not doing that, then there is not a promise. And you will have good reason to fear for the future. This isn't a threat to try to force you to do something. It's not trying to scare you in any way. But it is the principle that the whole thing operates upon. My treasure is in heaven. God is my master. Therefore, I don't worry. A plus B equals C. It's, it's a math problem. I like, Keith, you like that. It's a math problem. It makes sense. It's logical. So the question still must be addressed is what does it mean to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness? This is the last thing I want to answer. It means that at every point in my life, I will view things in light of what it will do to expand his kingdom and reflect his righteousness. That's what it means to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. The preoccupation of my mind becomes the things of God and not my own kingdom or my pleasure. Seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness means that the most important issue in every decision I make and in everything I do is determining God's purpose for me. 
I must ask myself, what is most pleasing to God when I am faced with a decision, when I am faced with a fork in the road? What decision that I make here would be most pleasing to God? What will further His kingdom? What will best reflect His righteousness? The answer to those questions then determines my course of action, which way I go. Jesus tells me in this wonderful passage that we've just gone through that God does not want my mind to be preoccupied by the things of this world. This is, if you get nothing else, God does not want our minds to be preoccupied with the worries and the cares and the fretting and the things of this world. He wants our minds centered on his kingdom and his righteousness. He makes such a wonderful promise here that if I will seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, then he's going to provide all that I need. I have no reason to be anxious. I have no reason to fear the future. Jesus is offering us a better way. He's offering you a better way today. That's what's... I, it, it, my face just lit up when, I, when I, I typed that out. And it wasn't my idea. It came from somewhere else. Jesus is offering us a better way. Sure, you can lay up treasures on earth. You can try to serve God and mammon, but your reward for that is going to be worry and stress. Or we can put treasures in heaven, can't we? We can be slaves to Jesus Christ and we can seek his kingdom and his righteousness. The reward is that I don't worry about the future. That's the reward. That, folks is a wonderful way to live. That is a wonderful, wonderful way to live. How many of you are sick of worry and fretting and fear and all that anxiety? How many of you are sick of it? I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it. The answer is where is my treasure and who is my master? And I don't have to worry about a thing. Yeah. 